welcome to episode 26 of the Underground Christian Podcast. Fair use warning, this podcast may contain copyrighted material. Pursuant to the Fair Use Doctrine of Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, limited use is permitted for specific purposes such as criticism, comment, news, reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. This podcast is otherwise copyrighted by the Underground Christian Broadcast. Thank you for supporting us and helping to spread the word about this podcast. There's a lot of news this week that's worth diving into, some good, some bad, and some pitiful. It's all part of a war that's going on, one that pits Jesus, his angels, and the church on one side, and Satan, his angels, and the world on the other side. It's a spiritual war that's spilling over into the physical world. In past episodes, we identified the spiritual objectives of Satan that are spelled out in the Bible. They all center around the unpleasant truth that Satan does not hold human beings in high esteem, but he does hold himself that way. He's fighting a war with God that will result in his facing an eternity of suffering and humiliation unless he can find a way to win it. Winning, in that sense, means thwarting God's prophesied plan, prophesied plan of redemption for human beings. And at this point in the war, Satan's left with just a handful of ways he can accomplish that. All of his remaining options involve forcing God to renege on one of the many promises that he made to the Jewish descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But don't think that Satan is a completely defanged opponent because he has resources in this world to pull it off, or at least to try to pull it off. At the moment, control of the world is his. He rules it and he directs its many activities. The world I'm speaking about is the social, political, economic, and military system that's been constructed at Satan's direction to advance his strategic goals, and most of what we think as the world is part of that system. Into this world stormed Jesus, the man who intends to dispossess Satan of his assigned rulership, the assignment having come to Satan from God the Father. It's ironic, then, that the dispossessor is also coming from God the Father. But God the Father is sovereign over the entire creation, material and immaterial, and he never relinquished that authority. He just delegated some of it to Satan for some, as yet, undisclosed reason. So into this comfortable world of satanic authority stormed Jesus, who vowed to build his church inside the world system, the church being the physical part of his kingdom that's made up of loyalist recruits. It would be like Benjamin Netanyahu vowing to construct a Jewish resistance organization inside Hitler's Germany. But it's actually more extreme than that, because Netanyahu is no Jesus, and Hitler, for all of his evil predispositions, doesn't measure up to the depth of evil that's manifested in Satan. In this war, people are free to live their lives as they wish, or, as the Bible puts it, everyone does what's right in his own eyes. What we think is right, however, can be severely influenced by unseen, but not unfelt, spirits on both sides of the conflict. Most people are on the side of the world by default, and consequently, they're susceptible to influence by demonic spirits. Some people are on Jesus' side, so they get to be influenced by God's ministering spirits, most notably the Holy Spirit. So this war is, first and foremost, a spiritual conflict that rages around us in order to influence the perceptions, decisions, and behaviors of people. That influence is manifested through the hearts and minds of individual people, which are the two components of our being that drive human will and action. Proverbs 4.23 strongly advises us to take care of these two vitally important components of our being. It says, Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. 
the heart turns us toward Jesus and God or toward the world and Satan. In the first, we obtain eternal life because of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And in the second, we obtain a prolonged and unpleasant death because of Satan, who he is and what we have done with him. Being aligned with Jesus and God is what it means to have springs of life flowing from the heart. The heart, being the emotional epicenter of the soul, finds, establishes, and cultivates the values that direct our will, which gives the impetus to affect the physical world around us, including other people. In Romans 12:2, the Apostle Paul admonished us to adopt our value system from God and not from the world. He said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And this is where the mind comes in, it being the thinking center of consciousness. The human mind is capable of cutting through emotional camouflage put up by the world to see the true source of its values, and then, by discerning what is true and good and acceptable to God, reprogramming our heart to embrace godly values so that our will can be directed to conduct righteous actions. Alternatively, we can just let our minds be captive to the thoughts of Satan's army of demons as we eagerly seek to satiate our desire to practice whatever wanton sin seems good to us. Our unrepentant practice of sin creates a spiritual captivity to Satan within his world system. To escape that captivity, we have to have our minds renewed by the activity of the Holy Spirit, which is the only way we're able to properly discern the will of God. That process begins by hearing or reading the Word of God, which is the Bible, and then by accepting Jesus as our Lord, Commander, and ultimately the Savior of our souls and Deliverer of our future bodies. If you have trouble believing that we are engaged in a great spiritual war, you need look no further than the response to the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade. When the court did that, about half the country collectively lost its mind. I have to admit it's hard for me to wrap my head around some of the vitriol that spews out of the mouths of members of the world, but for your sake, I subject myself to it. For example, there is a woman, uh, at least I think it's a woman, who goes by the handle of Mama B Energy over at TikTok. She has something to say about the Supreme Court's decision, and it is classic world speak. This is a great example of how people willingly and eagerly think with their heart and not their head, even a desperately wicked and unutterably deceitful and wretched heart that is aligned perfectly with Satan's will. Let's hear what Mama has to say. Get angry! We could just end the diatribe right here, because that's really a succinct summary of the rest of the content from this TikTok influencer. It is raw emotional rage, hatred, and the basest intolerance for any other person who thinks even a teensy bit differently about the value of human life. It is a fine example of demonic impulses on steroids that are intended to make anyone in their way feel threatened and intimidated. Let's play a little bit more of Mama. This is atrocious! This is war on women! And this is the danger of not using the noodle that God mercifully gave us for something other than taking up space in our head. War is a series of violent attacks that are intended to destroy property and kill people in order to extend political power into an area that was not previously under the control of an authority. I think what she really means is that she champions tyranny provided the tyranny produces the desires of her heart. 
we will skip over her profane, vindictive aspersions and jump to the point where her senses somewhat return to her, or at least what pass for her senses. Fuck you, Kavanaugh! Fuck you, Gorsuch, for lying under oath when you were confirmed, saying that you believed that this was settled! Women will die! But as long as it fits your Christian goddamn narrative, it must be correct! White women of privilege will still have access after their senators fuck them. Poor working mothers will not. Young women who are victims of sexual assault will not. Women who found out that their child is not viable in the third trimester will not. And who the fuck knows what's going to happen ectopically because have you men prove that you don't know what an ectopic pregnancy is? How do I have less rights than my mother? Not everybody believes in your sky daddy. Not everybody believes in your cloud papa. The fact that you tied religion to your decision is pathetic. Rolling back the clock on women's rights and bodily autonomy is pathetic. And here we go. They always feel the need to blaspheme and mock God with words like sky daddy, cloud papa, and old man in the sky. I guess it makes them feel powerful because God is kind and patient and does not deal with their mockery just yet. This is an example of how people leave their hearts and minds open to the whisperings and mutterings of Satan. Hatred of Christians is so classically satanic. If this woman would stop simmering in her emotions long enough to think, she might consider what the Supreme Court decision actually did. It simply recognized the words of the Constitution which nowhere even hint at the right to an abortion. That so-called right has always been a fabricated right, a fake constitutional claim that never actually existed, even though we got really good pretending that it did over the last 50 long years. If Ms. Mama Bienergy at TikTok can point out where in the Constitution it secures the right for anyone to have an abortion, or if she can find a spot where it even references abortion, I will be happy to dedicate the next 10 episodes to promoting her right to have abortions. But she won't be able to do that because there's no such enumerated right. It was just a wild fantasy of Justice Harry Blackman and six other justices who took the liberty that's not granted to them by the Constitution to create a law and bypass both the Congress and President to implement it, not to mention the American people. They felt entitled by the power of their positions to do so, since it was just too hard to get a constitutional amendment passed the legitimate way. In other words, they cheated. So 50 years and 70 million dead babies later, the constitutional provisions were finally clarified and the fake right created by Justice Blackman was corrected by returning the law to the status of what the Constitution actually says. What it actually says is that any power not specifically enumerated by the Constitution is reserved for the states or the people. To progressives and baby-killing aficionados, that is a very unpopular statement that actually is in the Constitution. And it is not true that this woman has fewer rights, not less rights, than her mother. Fewer refers to the number of things, less refers to a smaller size or degree but we should not expect too much grammatical precision from our progressive neighbors, and I certainly don't. Actually, we have the same number of rights today as we have always had because the rights are granted by God, not by men or women or Congress or the Supreme Court or even by constitutions. Privileges and permissions are granted by people, 
and privileges and permissions can be granted or taken away by those who have power. And those who have the most power are those who are able and willing to wield the most force, usually brutal force. Is that what she wants? Does she want America to devolve into mob rule where the people who are most willing and able to violently attack other people will be the ones who make the decisions? Or does she just expect those who disagree with her to shut up and let the woke mob rule? Yes, I think that's it. But we won't do that because we know who really rules, and it ain't the woke mob. It's God. God said it is he who makes human beings, and he does it in the womb of a woman. He does it at the point of conception, not at whatever arbitrary moment the progressive's collective mind decides that a pile of cells becomes a human being who has rights. But until then, it's just a non-human being who does not have any rights at all. Mama drips contempt for a paternalist society that protects the rights of unborn children over the rights of born women, but does she realize that some of those unborn children are women with rights? When does Mama B Energy over at TikTok think that womanness and rights begin? Is she willing to discuss it? No, I'll bet she's not, mostly because she has no rational answer to that kind of rational question but also because she covets the privilege to decide if and when a living baby in her womb gets to live or has to die. She loves the cult of death on demand just as long as it isn't her death. That would be wrong. She gives no thought to a baby's death, no consideration of her moral duty to act responsibly when it comes to having sex with a man, not that I think this woman is in any danger of having sex with a man, that's just a hunch. She spews lies with alacrity when it comes to women who will now supposedly be forced to carry unviable babies and die with ectopic pregnancies. If she really believes those things, she's either a complete idiot or is an insane psychopath. You know, it didn't take a whole lot of effort for me to find a summary of all the state's legislation that restricts abortions, as well as those that are moving towards restricting abortions. You might be interested to know that all of them make allowances for medically necessary health care, of which unviable babies and ectopic pregnancies are specifically called out. It's in all of them. So is Mama deliberately lying or just a psychopath? You make the call. Either way, God calls us to have mercy on her soul. She is, after all, a victim of Satan's wiles and the mainstream media, which is the mouthpiece of Satan's wiles. The media regularly unleash a carefully crafted, well-orchestrated false narrative that, at a minimum, sets the emotional tone for riots and killings, and champions calls to overthrow the government. This was wonderfully captured by Mark Dice on his channel. Allow me to replay just a little bit of it. They might not be able to sacrifice their children to Moloch since the Supreme Court overruled Roe versus Wade. Stand by, Jeffrey. Uh, we do have breaking news just into CNN. Give me just a moment of Please. personal here. Sorry, I'm getting, you know, watching the women there. It's emotional. You know, what? This is as devastating a ruling as can be imagined. It's a very dark day in America. There really is a, a lot of people who believe this is a rigged court. We are looking at a sort of a constitutional, legal, I, I don't want to use the word civil war. This is going to be a legal civil war. It's going to be legal chaos. We're sort of entering the legal wild west here. Yet I've not heard one word of outrage from the Honorable Speaker of the House in Washington, D.C. about these threats, even as she chairs a monkey court to investigate the January 6th so-called insurrection event. 
while she and her cohorts pursue the persecution of Donald Trump, who was not at the Capitol building that afternoon, and American citizens who were there but were enticed into a trap, there is not a single word about the violent protests that are building across the nation or any objection to the individuals who are openly calling for an insurrection and overthrow of the Supreme Court. You see this turnout here? You ain't seen nothing yet. Women are going to control their bodies no matter how they try and stop us. The hell with the Supreme Court. We will defy them. I love definitions, so let's see what the word insurrection means. According to dictionary.com, an insurrection is an act or instance of rising in revolt, rebellion, or resistance against civil authority or an established government. That is exactly what the left is calling for. So how does this all fit into the spiritual war that we're engaged in? What does it all have to do with Satan and his strategic plans? Well, it has a great deal to do with it. Baby killing is a symbolic ritual that Satan has required from his followers for millennia. Baal and Moloch come to mind in the Bible, but baby killing is as old as civilization itself. It is the pagan sacrament to their pagan religion of Satan, whatever form it might take, even atheism. Satan requires a blood sacrifice of human beings, and the more the merrier. Irresponsible and ungodly sexual activities, coupled with obsessive self-gratification and disdain for personal inconvenience and responsibility, birth a desire in many people to kill the object of the inconvenience and their unwanted responsibilities. Another sacrifice comes to Satan. But that is just a sideshow of satanic worship. Satan's grand plan is to force God to be a liar by making it impossible for him to fulfill his promises to the Jewish people and nation. While that might sound innocuous, it isn't once you realize what he needs to do to pull it off. We'll get to that in a moment, because first we should recognize that Satan cannot do this on his own. He needs a small team of highly capable human beings who are willing and able to provide the physical capabilities that Satan does not have to effectuate his plan. There are many people who are willing to help Satan, and those currently helping him to pull this off have sold their souls to him in exchange for three things. The promise of unlimited wealth, the promise of unlimited power, and the promise of unlimited life. Satan has provided these people the first item in this list in abundance. We saw just a few episodes back how most of the Western world's economy is controlled by just a handful of mysterious people through the agency of a single corporation. It wields almost unimaginable economic power and has almost unlimited economic wealth. The second promise, power, Satan has dispensed to favored rulers, even in the democratic West. It's my view that our current rulers were selected and not elected, I guess we'll just find out for sure in this next election. Regardless, they've begun to operate as the budding tyrants they've always wanted to be, and there does not seem to be any organized way to stop them. Finally, the third promise of unlimited life is in the production stage. They're working on that, and as we saw these past two episodes, they are getting distressingly close to being able to try. These demonically-led economic, political, and scientific rulers are working feverishly to advance the goals of Satan because he is their Lord, and his goals are their goals, and his goal is to make God a liar. He will try to do that by stopping God from fulfilling his promises. The main promise God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
was to create a permanent Jewish state that rules over the earth and saves the Jewish people from their sin. Since that hasn't happened yet, Satan can secure his victory by keeping it from ever happening. And there are three ways he can do that. He could eliminate all the Jews from the earth so there are no Jews to form a state. That requires Satan's men to find them and kill them all before anyone can stop them from doing that. He's tried that before, and he may try it again. But it can be hard to find all these people hiding in every nook and cranny. It might be easier to just eliminate all people everywhere on the earth, which would include the Jews. Maybe he can find a way to exterminate everyone quickly so that there is no one left. Nuclear war, biological war, chemical war, robot wars, who knows? But that would still be a hard thing to pull off because inevitably not everyone is going to be on board with that plan. It might be better to offer something so tempting to people that they will willingly come to him, a something that will result in the alteration of people in a way that will keep them perpetually from God. Satan can make people unpeople, human-like, but not really human. I'm not sure he has a preference which one of those three things to do, but the human beings he needs to implement these plans sure have a preference. They like, want, and are working to implement the third option. They aren't against partial fulfillment of the first two, but the third is what really attracted their loyalty. Unfortunately for Satan, he's under some deadline pressure. He has to complete one of these three options before the following two events occur. The first, he must implement the plan before a set number of Gentiles enter the kingdom of Jesus Christ, Romans 11.25. And he must implement his plan before the salvation of the remaining Jews after the set number of Gentiles have entered the kingdom of Christ are saved. Romans 11.26 and Zechariah 11, Zechariah 10-12. The deadline is fast approaching, which means his small army of enthusiastic followers have a deadline too. To obtain the unlimited wealth and power that they crave, these demonically influenced leaders are rushing to reduce the size of Earth's human population to a manageable level so that they can implement the next phase of the plan. These leaders have decided that a manageable level is around 1 billion people, give or take 500 million, which means that 90-95% to 95 of the human population has to go away. And soon. That takes Satan a long way toward his goal of the second option of eliminating all people everywhere. And while they're at it, these human leaders will happily eliminate as many Jews as possible, as they have no particular love of Jews. Plus, it will make their boss really happy. But as I said, the real goal is the third option. Satan's human enablers want to change themselves and others in a way that the changes will make them almost physically indestructible so that they can become almost immortal. Such changes, if they are implemented, will have the unintended consequence of initiating a permanent separation from God for those who receive the changes. Or maybe it's an intended consequence, at least with the leaders who know what's going on. That was the danger in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Once they rebelled against God by eating the forbidden fruit, their eyes were opened and they suddenly knew good and evil. That word translated new in English is yada in Hebrew, which has a very similar meaning to the Greek word genosko. That is also translated new in Matthew 7.23, specifically when Jesus declared, I never knew you. Both convey a sense of a very intimate intellectual and personal familiarity. Adam and Eve suddenly knew good and evil in the sense that they came face to face with them personally and intimately 
and understood their implications. That very personal experiential knowledge was brought about by sin, and once sin is birthed, permanent separation from God is the inevitable consequence, as God has ordained that the wages of sin is death. People who commit sin, which is divine rebellion that emerges out of an evil heart, those people will not be allowed in the presence of a holy and pure God. In order for people to be with God, something has to be done to correct the sin problem. If Adam and Eve had eaten the fruit of the tree of life after they ate the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, they would have forever been separated from God because their bodies would be made immortal. Sin is intimately tied to our physical bodies, and making the body immortal prevents the sin from being fixed. We not only need the blood of Jesus to fix our sin problem spiritually, our old bodies need to die so we can get new models that will be permanently free of sin. If someone traps their unpaid sin inside an immortal body, they must forever be separated from God. God does not take back what he gives, including an immortal body. That's why in Genesis 3.22-24, God had to quickly drive Adam and Eve out of his garden. So what are the masters of destiny trying to do? They're trying to create a body that will live forever. They are not going to succeed, but what they will succeed in doing is altering the body so substantially that it no longer responds to the invitations of God. Their heart, and therefore their soul, will become permanently attached to a perverse imitation of the truly immortal body that God offers to everybody. They will prevent their soul from being redeemed by God and thereby condemn themselves to the same fate that would have awaited Adam and Eve had they eaten the fruit of the tree of life. It's the same fate that awaits Satan and his fallen angels. So the two agendas, one human, one satanic, meet at a location of unimaginable evil. Both require the destruction of Jews, the elimination of large numbers of human beings, particularly Christians, and the permanent replacement of the human creation of God with an inhuman creation of man, all with the help of Satan and his demonic army. Gosh, that takes a little time to explain. Which brings us back to Roe v. Wade and the other events of the current age. Let's take the big three objectives of Satan. Let's start with the elimination of Jews, since that seems most manageable. There's a reason that anti-Semitism just won't go away, and it doesn't really have anything to do with the fake Jews that control much of the world. Yes, they indirectly control pretty much everything, but they are not the real Jews that God speaks about. They are imposters who actually can't stand the real Jews, and they are far from having the Jews' best interests in mind. Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, and others were just warm-ups for the real deal of a worldwide anti-Semitic genocide that Satan plans in the near future. Like everything that Satan does, he mixes a little truth in with a lot of lies to confuse everyone regarding who is good, who is evil, who is working to better life, and who is setting up a trap to ensnare and kill their prey, or at least enslave them, and that trap will be sprung on the Jews. They've been the subject of the world's hatred for a long time and have been under judgment by God ever since Jesus was crucified, and even before that, they were under the periodic judgment of God going all the way back to the era of the judges. Anyone who reads the Bible knows how frequently God was disgusted with his chosen people. They were far from the perfect nation, and the people's hearts and actions were far, far from God much more often than they were close to God, despite all that he did for them. They were so evil and so rebellious against God that he destroyed the nation of Israel several times in several different ways, 
and he sent countless Jews off to experience a fate of misery and death at the hands of their enemies. Yet, through it all, God never forgot his people, and he always intended to bring ultimate salvation to the Jews in order to fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One of the ways he secured their future was to scatter the Jewish people to the nations, sending them out in waves to live in the land of their oppressors. There he protected them in small communities, primarily by keeping them as helpless minorities who could not threaten the rulers. Since they were never a threat to the political powers of the world, the world more or less forgot about them. That all changed in 1947. From the end of World War II in 1945 to 1947, Jews from all over the world regathered into their ancestral homeland rather than face continued persecution in the post-war countries in which they were living. There they were gathered together and formed the new nation of Israel in 1947. A whole lot of Jews in one place with more pouring in every year. Now a whole host of prophecy teachers teach that this was predicted by the prophecies of Isaiah and Ezekiel, but they're wrong. Those prophecies are talking about a later period in the future. For example, Jeremiah 31.10 says, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles far off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. This is not speaking about the formation of Israel in 1947. This is speaking about a regathering of the Jews by God. It is speaking of a much later event that has yet to happen. It goes on to say in verse 12, Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. I believe there is still sorrow in Israel, so that has to be talking about the millennial kingdom or even later in the eternal state. It's not today. Another passage often cited to prove that the regathering of Jews in Israel today is the prophesied returned by God is Jeremiah 16 verse 15. It reads, The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them, for I will bring them back into their land which I gave to their fathers. Well, that sounds promising, but again, reading the surrounding text makes it clear that this verse is talking about the forced regathering of the Jews by Jesus during the tribulation portion of his second return. It's not the current regathering by men. The whole text reads, starting in verse 14, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land which I gave to their fathers. Behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. And first I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin, because they have defiled my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. What this actually is, is a judgment against the modern Jews who are living in a state of unrepentant idolatry all over the world. The first time Jesus came to the earth, he sent out fishermen to bring the Jews to him. That's called the church, and the fishermen are Christians. Jesus said to his closest disciples, I will make you fishers of men. 
when Jesus returns the second time, he's going to send out hunters instead of fishermen. The hunters will be his angelic forces that will forcibly gather the Jews together for punishment for their detestable idolatry. They will not come willingly because they will be afraid of Jesus at that point, and rightly so. But he will have mercy on them and save them in the end, as it clarifies in verse 21. Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know, I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. They will know in a very intimate way that Jesus is the Lord. Then they will look at him whom they pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, Zechariah 12.10. Then there is the prophecy of Isaiah 11, 11-12 and a bit of 14. This is a victory lap for Jews, so everyone gets really excited about these verses. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. Again, it's Jesus who gathers the Jews, not man. This passage skips the part where he disciplines them first and they mourn and get right with him. And it takes us right to the next part where he brings them with him to conquer the remaining enemies who have so mercilessly persecuted them in the times of the Gentiles. This is the second gathering. Many people interpret the second gathering to be after the Babylonian dispersion, but that doesn't make any sense because the Jews were never regathered into a nation. They were always under the thumb of a foreign power. Everything from the Babylonian dispersion onwards is the time of the Gentiles, not a time when Israel was regathered to form a nation. The first gathering was by the command of God when he formed the original nation of Israel by bringing them out of the Gentile land of Egypt. The second gathering, or coming together as a nation, will be at Jesus' command when he returns as the conquering king and brings them out of exile from the Gentile lands of the world. There won't actually be an Israeli nation at that time. Modern-day Israel is destined to die at the hands of the Antichrist as a nation. So this passage from Isaiah 11 is actually an end-time prophecy of Jesus' regathering the Jewish people together into his kingdom, one that has yet to be established on the earth. It has nothing to do with the voluntary gathering of Jews in modern-day Israel today. Finally, we get to the prophecy of Ezekiel 37:21. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. Again, it looks really good for the modern regathering, but read just a little bit further and it's plain that this is yet another prophecy of the end-time regathering after Christ returns to the earth starting in verse 22. And I will make them one nation in the land and on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. Jesus is the one king this prophecy speaks of, and he isn't here yet. 
That final kingdom is certainly not a democracy like modern-day Israel. Just as in the previous prophecy, Jesus is going to deal with their idols, which is a whole topic unto itself. He will gather the Jews from their dwelling places around the world, discipline and then cleanse them, after which they will mourn and accept him as the Messiah they had always denied. Then they will become members of his kingdom, after which the rest of the end-time prophecies concerning the conquering and cleanup operations will be fulfilled. So back to the 21st century. What is this gathering of Jews in Israel today? It's man's attempt to form what God has ordained that he will form, just like people think they can do anything else that God does, only better. They can make bodies better. They can make governments better. They can make health better. They can make genders better. They can make life better. We don't follow God's instructions, and we don't like waiting for God to do the things that we are impatient to have done. And the Jews didn't like waiting either. So they went ahead and made the kingdom that God said he would make because they got impatient waiting for God to do it. And while they're at it, they are going to reestablish the sacrificial system in Israel just to complete their blasphemy. How typical. It is God who is going to regather the Jews via the person of Jesus Christ, just as it was God who saved the whole world, both Jews and Gentiles, through the suffering, death, and resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ, the whole world who will accept him. Today, we have an imposter Israel, I am sad to say, imposter in the sense that this is not the regathering that the Bible speaks of. It is, however, a necessary regathering to fulfill other prophecies of Revelation concerning the horrendous butchery that the Antichrist is going to inflict on Israel. Israel had to reform, but not by the regathering of God via the prophecies. That regathering will take place after the tribulation period, after Jesus returns to the earth. In the meantime, there are a lot of Jews hanging out in one place, ideally situated for Satan to deal with. It's kind of like fishing in a hatchery. So many targets, so little space. If there's one thing that a study of the end times makes clear, it's that a lot of people are going to die in the tribulation period. Many are going to be killed by the satanic powers that will be unleashed on the earth in that day, and many more people, principally Satan's enthusiastic supporters, will be killed by the judgments of God. Carnage is ordained, and carnage will take place. In fact, Jesus said that if those days had not been shortened, no flesh would survive, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened, Matthew 24:22. God is not the one who intends to wipe out humanity. That's Satan through his servants, the captains of human destiny. We met some of them in the last couple of episodes. So how are they going to try to pull it off? The most urgent desire of both Satan and his worldly leaders is to radically reduce the size of the Earth's population. I can't emphasize that fact enough because so many people refuse to believe it. We naturally think that other people, particularly famous people, are decent human beings who have our best interests in mind. It's normal and natural to believe that our government and other world leaders also have our best interests in mind. Most people have a very hard time wrapping their minds around the idea that famous celebrities and political leaders in our government want us dead. It seems surreal and outrageous, and it is. But really, who are these people who think they have the authority to decide who lives and who dies, only to enslave the unlucky survivors? 
Yet leaders like this, people who have the support of large populations, come into power and unleash their own versions of genocide on people all the time. It's happened throughout human history. It was really common in the 20th century, and it's happening again in the 21st century right up to the present moment. These kinds of people are much more common than you think because the unregenerate human soul is much more evil than you think. After killing as many people as possible, the second most urgent desire of both Satan and his world leaders is to change humanity into something that is not quite human. They call it transhumanism. They say it will improve the human being, make us better. They say it will enable us to escape the limitations of organic carbon life and enter the unlimited potential of inorganic metallic life. What it will really do is enable the people who are at the top of this monstrous pyramid of power to completely control the less human hybrids, which will include physical control as well as psychological and thought control. They will create the ultimate slaves, people who are unable to rebel because they will be unable to formulate the thoughts to rebel or take action to rebel. Both of these uncontrollable impulses are strongly felt by these globalist leaders. The urge to radically reduce the size of the human population and the urge to start transforming human bodies into something less human. These go hand in hand. These two objectives have converged in a strategic plan for both Satan and his leaders. And as an unpleasant side benefit, the plan will allow them to freely slaughter both Christians and Jews worldwide. To do these things efficiently and without the consent of the governed, because they will never get the consent from the governed, they need to find a mechanism to both kill and alter our physiology simultaneously, ideally where the subjects of the plot would willingly embrace the mechanism by which the changes take place. To keep from tipping off the sheeple too soon, the deleterious effects would need to occur over a time span where excess deaths would not be directly attributable to the plan, but not take too long because these people are in a hurry. The mechanism used to kill should also create some kind of threshold of transhumanizing for those who do not die before too many people suspect what's taking place. The threshold might be something like creating a dependency that is needed in order to continue living or creating enough negative side effects so that the subjects feel they have no choice but to complete the transformation as directed. So these world leaders have it figured out and have put this plan into action. Do you see the dilemma for Christians and anyone else who loves God? If we take part in this program, even innocently, we are trapping ourselves in a problem we may not be able to undo. Fortunately for Christians, Jesus spent some time forewarning us about what is coming. He wrote it all down in a part of a book that most preachers stay far away from and that most teachers of prophecy consistently get wrong. Jesus told us what's coming, what to expect, and what we are to do when it happens if we are truly his followers. That is what we're going to explore next episode. And after that, we will be ready to go down the rabbit hole of technology and spirituality that are mixing together in unexpected ways to produce the grandest of all illusions for those who are prepared to see it for what it is. The illusion that man can make himself almost into a god. That will come through the explosion of technology with the reemergence of fallen angels in physical form on the earth. It's not a good combination. Gosh, that's a cliffhanger. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and give it a happy face or whatever your app has to encourage others to listen. And maybe even, you know, give them a cookie. 
Please pray for this podcast to reach more people and help them personally and spiritually. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, and Pandora, so there's no reason why your friends can't listen. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Until next time, keep your eyes open, your ears tuned, and your feet moving to do the work of God. 